Welcome to Colorado Hunting Hub. This podcast is designed to talk about everything hunting in Colorado. Whether you're a new hunter, old timer, or something else, Colorado Hunting Hub will have something for you. I'm your host, Clint Whitley, and let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to Colorado Hunting Hub. Thanks for listening, checking this podcast out if you're new to it. There's probably a bunch of you. Uh, ever since we merged with iHunt Colorado, we've had some really good turnout with downloads, so I can see there's more folks out there listening. So I really appreciate every single one of you, even if you don't like it. I'm doing my best for you. So if you are new and you got some comments, questions, concerns, whatever, shoot me email, message, whatever. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook. Just search Colorado Hunting Hub and you'll find me. Emails clint.a.whitley w-h-i-t-l-e-y at gmail.com and if you wouldn't mind uh giving me a five-star review on itunes subscribe however so as you're downloading these things automatically it really help me a bunch and allow me to keep doing it just got one of my first bills for one of the my podcast site hosts uh yeah that that one sucked but okay i'm enjoying this it's fun i i'm getting some cool interviews and learning a lot so i hope i'm bringing something for you as listeners so you can be updated on something or have something to listen to that's relevant to hunting your state even if you're out of state hunter or i've got quite a few listeners across the country so far even uh ontario still got a couple listeners there thanks for downloading and listening uh, but we also want to make sure we're thanking Onyx. They've downloaded or they've donated twelve memberships, and we're giving those away one one a month. I know that's not much, but that's a start. There's some bigger items coming. Trust me, I'll make sure that happens. Uh, but get your name in the hat <clears throat> for your Onyx membership, and I will be drawing those. I don't have a large listening crowd quite yet, so make sure you put your name in the hat. Why not save yourself twenty nine ninety nine? And get yourself a um, membership to Onyx. That's a must-have for for walking around in the field in Colorado for sure. So if you haven't listened to that episode, check that one out. It's episode 11. Uh, in this episode, we have Ivan. He's a professional fly fisherman. He's a guide and takes in the Roaring Fork, Colorado River area. And good guy. Used to work for him a little while back for summer job, part-time job, uh, and uh, we've just kind of stayed in contact over the years. But I, I'm not as anywhere near as knowledgeable as he is in the fishing world, so was, I picked up quite a few things there. And, and even though we didn't get too terrible in depth, it was still some good stuff. So we talked to, about some fishing, and he, he he does a lot of duck hunting, but we didn't get into that maybe another day. Uh, and then he also as a little turkey story as well as a new project he's working on. So we'll put some links and things that you need in the show notes. So make sure you get signed up for that giveaway links down below in the description. Thanks again for listening. And here's our interview with Ivan. Thanks for coming on Ivan. Uh, I've worked with you way back. Got some mutual friends. Uh, now we chat occasionally just about some hunting and fishing and, and I know you're a fishing guide, but 
Uh, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Well, I grew up in South Louisiana. I'm 100% Cajun. Um, my father took me hunting and fishing as a kid. And for me, it just kind of grew from there. I, uh, you know, we hunted mostly ducks and dove when I was a kid. Um, my first wing shooting was in South Texas in Pearsall, Texas. And it was incredible. I remember watching people just grab the gun from the back of the truck, knock one down and me feeling that the age of Jiminy Cricket's probably 12 or 13, that I wanted to be like that. Um, so I fell in love with it pretty quick. And um, then through college at LSU, uh, getting my degree in accounting, I really didn't have time to hunt. And once I moved up to Snowmass Village in Colorado, that's when I kind of got into it for myself and uh, have been a professional fly fishing guide for almost 30 years and just uh, done a lot, a lot of hunting and fishing here in Colorado and in elsewhere. And it's just been a huge part of my life. I think you have probably the most recognizable guide boat. Can you want to describe that really quick? Uh, sure. I have a good buddy of mine who um, we're just going to call him Pheasant Phil, um, who told me one day last year when I was getting my boat, my first brand new boat of my entire guide career. And he goes, Hey, Hey, Kunas, let's, uh, wrap that thing. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I have a wrapping machine. And so what we did was, uh, we designed what I wanted to do. Hopefully not, um, well, knowingly that we avoided any infringements and my entire boat, uh, the most of it is a large tiger and near the tail it says lsu tigers for lsu and on the front bow i have a saints emblem for the new orleans saints and it says who that nation so that's how it all came apart and yeah i can't do anything wrong on the river because well i got the only boat of its kind anywhere yeah i can i can pick it out from anywhere and <laughs> usually when i'm driving by the boat launches i'll see you and man like oh ivan's out or I'll see your car or something. So I'm keeping tabs on you. I know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> moving on to kind of your your guide situation, how how is it being a guide right now, and what's the what's the Im impact that the pandemic is having on on the guides? And well, in our world right now, in the Roaring Fork Valley, Aspen, Vale, Glenwood Springs. Um, all of us are out of work and have been for a number of weeks. Um, the guide Alliance, there's a, there's a, an Alliance called the Roaring Fork guide Alliance, which is most guides in the Roaring Fork Valley, um, are part of it from each of the different outfitting services. They're actually having a meeting tonight to talk about when, um, it's appropriate for the outfitters to reopen. Most of this is actually being determined by the governor and whether or not outfitting services in each particular county are allowed. Um, so I think it's in conjunction from the county level and the, the governor's uh, house level um, is how they're coming about the protocols. It looks as though we will be able to start boat guiding again or maybe guiding single man wade fishing only um 
May 14th. That's what it looks like now. Um, so we're trying to, uh, I guess nobody's working. That's the only way to say it. And we're waiting to reopen responsibly. Um, I sent um, a list of things that I thought should be boat protocols on the list once we reopen to uh, Tom at Roaring Fork Anglers, who's the manager of the store down there. And uh, I've spoken to Tony, who's our outfitter at Alpine Angling. And and I know that Lonnie Kitchen with Proudline Guide Service is also on the board of the Roaring Fork Alliance. So she'll be there tonight. So we're, uh, as a guide community, we're really um, trying to reopen in the best manner. Um, and on the other side, all of us that rely on that as our, as our income are out of work. That's tough. <laughs> That's tough, man. Cause it, I know it's a, it's a, it's a season that you're working around. There's only X number of days in it. That's correct. And each time you lose a day from a pandemic or a, you know, rain shower that blows out the rivers, that's a day's loss of wages for the season and that you can't make up. You're right. Yeah. Sure is a better job than sitting behind a desk though, Clint. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of that lately because I can't yeah. take kids out on outdoor ed trips. You saw me when I was doing that and I like being out on the river much better. Yep. So early in the spring seems to be kind of a, a good fishing time. And then right now it seems to be getting muddy. And as we get that spring runoff going and then fishing picks up in July again. Yeah. We just came out of, um, what I consider whenever a client asks me, when should I come fishing Ivan? Um, or anybody asks me that I always tell them the month of April, which we just finished. And, and I really like spring fishing. Um, most of us do. We're um, in the guide community, I mean, because, well, we have some trips and stuff, but it's the beginning of the season and we're not too busy. So we get to fish some too. And the fish have just come out of being cold for the whole winter. And the first hatch comes through usually after the midges is the betas and then the water temperature um, the way the hatches run through a river is, is as the water temperature increases, it triggers each of the hatches in each of the species. So when the water temperature is high enough for the fish to start really, you know, fighting like a spunky cat, um, then uh, that's about when the betas come out. And that's first week of April, last week of March. And so the three weeks of April are really good until the snow melts so much that our rivers start running hard. And what I experienced, I think it was last week on the river, um, the number of logs that start floating down the river as the upper creeks and valleys start to melt from the snow is pretty amazing and can be quite dangerous. In fact, if, uh, if a pretty large log comes up from behind you as you're, somewhat back rowing and not really looking. So um, we just are coming out of, or, or we're start, we're in that period right now where the river's coming up and there's a lot of debris floating down. So right now, as far as angling is concerned, if you're thinking about this week, we would mostly have stocked lakes. The ice has just receded from Harvey Gap, Rifle Gap, Rio Blanco, Rudai Reservoir. All of those lakes have fish in it. And 
what I've heard, even though I'm not a huge lake guy around here, but I'm getting into it some more, is right after the few weeks after the the ice melts is usually pretty darn good. And it's usually a spawning type of season for a fair number of species. I know that for northern pike. Yeah, and crappie and crappie smallmouth. And then seems like rifle gap gets a little bit better once that water temperature warms up just a little bit. Seem to I just seem to do better there on walleyes come July. I just was uh, in Wyoming for a 26-day refugee camp so to speak, from the pandemic. We'll save that story. But uh, I was casting to Northern Pike with a fly that were 30 inches long, and they were up in the shallows on Keyhole Reservoir. And I couldn't get one to eat. And I cast Mm. to a number of them over a number of days. I cast to them from the boat. I cast to them from the shore. And uh, I even put my fly an inch from the eye of a big giant one in the shallows now she probably was on her spawn bed and just didn't care about hitting something next to her and that's fishing but uh it sure was fun to go after him huh it, uh i hooked up with a big old northern and a float tube once and i got drug around a little pond that was a good time but uh Moving on, I, I'm a like I was alluding to. I'm a walleye perch bass fisherman and very part time fly fisherman. I enjoy it. I'll go out. I, I don't have an issue with a fly rod or a spin casting rod or anything. But as long as I'm fishing, I'm fishing. So, what can you give us for a guy like me who is pretty mid level, maybe lower level understanding of fishing for july fishing after some of this runoff has all happened and we get some of those clear clearer things what can what kind of tip can you give me to get a couple more fish so most people are wade fishermen they don't have a boat and even if you do have a boat in the big enough hole you can be stationary and not going down the river so think of uh, what i'll describe as a stationary situation in a in anything from a small creek to a really large river. And what every angler should remember is that 90% of the fish are in 10% of the water. And that's a very key statement. And the 10% of the water they're in is where, um, and oh, the next thing I usually say is that 90% of the fish are caught by 10% of the anglers because they know where the water is. (laughs) But um, that's true. And when you have a river in which a shelf is coming, if you think of it that way, a rock shelf, you're going to usually have a soft side after the shelf on the bank. And if you think about it, you're going to have very, very slow current on the bank's edge And right where the water dumps in off the shelf is where the current begins to increase. It's a change of current between slow and fast. 
Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Most trout are typically lazy, okay? They're just like a guy watching football that wants to be in his lazy boy, but he doesn't want to be too far from the beer box. So what most trout do will sit on the soft side of that change of current. And the reason why they're in that position is because most of the food that they eat on is coming right down that seam. That's where the majority of the food is pushed down the river by the water current, is right on the change of current seam. That's why they sit, the fish usually will sit on the inside soft side, so they don't have to spend a whole lot of energy to move three inches, grab a bug, and then come back to the soft side. A trout is very, very efficient on its its movements, especially... um, In July and August, he won't be as efficient because he's just feeding. It's hot. It's warm. But in the winter fly fishing conditions, he will be. He's not going to move very far for a fly. Coming up in July and August, they'll move a great deal for a fly. Um, But most of the fish are right in that change of current coming off a rock shelf flow. And that's the best thing that I can advise someone. Call your local fly shop, find out what they're eating on. In our valley, you're going to be throwing stone flies, prince nymphs, patch rubber leg stone. Um, leave that on for most of the summer. When it comes to August, you're going to fish grasshopper and dropper. And um, so thing the, the flies that you use as a fly fisherman in the middle of the summer are typically larger in size than each of the shoulders of the summer, meaning April in the spring, and then September and October in the fall. Um, with the exception of streamers, the flies on those shoulder sides of the summer are typically smaller. And uh, But we're coming into the heyday, and, it's, and the fish are going to be hungry. And it's, as the river comes down, from the runoff, what is going to happen is the river starts coming down from peak and it stays dirty. And then it stays kind of at one level and it starts to clear a little bit. And then when it gets almost green at that level, within five to seven days, it's going to start dropping and it's going to drop X number of inches each day. The very best time of the whole summer to fish is those 14 days where the river is clear and it starts to drop. Because each day, each few days, a different seam for an angler is exposed as the water comes down. There's more fish, 
that haven't been touched yet for almost the season, let's say. So that's definitely the best two-week period um, as it comes down. And then what will happen is it will level off. Everybody will be on the river for a few weeks. And then we get into late August and things will slow um, as far as the number of fish caught. So that's about how the season rolls here. Cool. I'll uh, keep that in mind. Try and try and use use those edges, the seams, a, a little bit better. I, but I that made me think of a presentation question. So when I'm casting across one of those seams to hit the other seam, the softer seam, it seems like that's really taking my line and pulling it, but then it's dragging heavy, uh, leaving my fly to drag, and it's it's. Yeah, what you're describing is the situation that is in need of what's called a mend. The object of the game is to let your flies, most cases, this is not the case in streamer fishing, but most cases, the object of the game is to let your flies float at the natural rate and direction of the stream wherever they are. Therefore, if you have fly line laying in the water that's getting pulled by opposite currents or such, you need to lift that elbow that's being pulled and roll it over to the other side so that your flies at the end of the leader are floating naturally. So fly line management and how they do or do not affect your fly float is one of the hardest things to learn as a fly fishing angler. It's how to manage all the line in the air and all the line on the water as you're drifting through. Okay. I got it. I've been, I've been messing around with that a little bit and casting, throwing just a little flip to create that, that loop instead of going downstream. Now that loop is the parabola of, of it, I guess is pointed upstream. Uh, yeah. To try and help with that, that drag a little and reduce the drag. So I think, I think I'm working at it. I still got to practice. I need, I just need to fish more. That's really what it comes we down to. We all need to fish more. Darn right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Ivan, you've been alluding to a turkey story. Let's jump over to the hunting world. And you're new to turkey hunting. And I guess you had a encounter you've been waiting to tell me, but tell me your turkey story. This is my first year turkey hunting. And everyone has told me most of my life they couldn't believe that I hadn't done it yet because I've done all other things and lots of it. But, uh, so I finally did it, took the time to do it this year because I have a property where I have permission and, uh, and I parked in the spot that you and I spoke of, cause you know, this property and I get out of the truck with my caller and, uh, cause I don't know how to call yet. And he's a good friend who's always offered to take me turkey hunting. He's in my boat a lot. And uh, so as the light's coming up and we just cross the fences from the truck, we're probably 30 yards from the truck. He says, well, there's one in that tree right there roosting. And he goes, let's just stay right here. So most of the turkeys were across the river from where we were, but there were a few of them in the trees <laughs> right when we got out of the truck. Um and you know that little downhill road, we're just standing at the top of it. And what the turkeys normally do 
um, is come out of the roost just as the light's coming up. And I think that's right about usually when shooting time is, which I believe is 30 minutes before sunrise. And uh, yep. so these three come out of the trees. And my buddy just says, let's just set up right here. So we literally set up right there. And within two calls, one pops his head over the road, completely within range of me being able to shoot. Now, I'm new at this. So without him strutting and showing me completely he was a male, and the light's not up enough for me to see that his head may or may not be red, but he's in range. And then all of a sudden, I see out of the, the left part of my view plane, the other two pop up and their heads pop over. So we got them all going and, um, and I'm trying to find the beard, trying to qualify that it's a male so that I can shoot them and be gone. And at one point, the one that just stayed right there in the perfect shooting lane, he turned in a way that I thought I saw a nub right there in his chest. And I figured to myself, well, maybe the beard like tucks under and yeah, that's a male, or at least I saw a nub. So I pulled the trigger and hit him and had chosen steel shot, which we might go into here in a little bit. And he flies towards me and then goes down a little bit behind a sagebrush. So we stand up. And I asked Ben, I said, could you tell if he was a male? He goes, no, I couldn't. I was just calling. So we walked up to where the bird was, and he's just standing on the ground looking around. There's no blood. There's no nothing. And I look at at Ben, and he looks at me, and I see that there's a little tiny nub. So he's a Jake, okay? So I felt really good that I did qualify in my own hunting head the proper male shot because I was worried about that during the event. And as we're looking at him, I he, there's no blood or anything. He just looked to be stunned, pretty much. And he starts running around, and he heads towards the fence we had just crossed. And as you know, turkeys, they don't like to like run across fences, borders, or anything like that. So as we're talking about, I'm kind of like, what should I do? And Because there's no blood. It, it almost looked like I stunned him. He runs towards us, and my buddy actually has to get out of the way. Otherwise, he gets run over by the darn turkey. (laughs) And all we could do was start laughing. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to put that bird out of his misery because, well, he deserves to live. And he ran back down the road and joined the other ones, and that was that. But um, it sure was a, a little bit comical for me because I couldn't tell if the nub was there. And then he just, he, he was, he was fine. And I hit him pretty hard. And uh, my buddy tells me that, yeah, they got like a shield of armor. And I believe that my choice that I pulled out of um, my stock of shells of steel, I, I don't think they have any kind of or impact power. And I must have not, of course, gotten any BBs in the head or neck, which is where you need to shoot. Um, but it, it sure was funny that he almost took out my friend as he went by us. And um, so that's my story. And that was uh, that's awesome. one of three days. And the second day we sat on that same side and all of the turkeys were on the other side of the river and there were lots of them. And my calling buddy 
got the lead hen to talk to him in a type of call that I've never heard before. And after the event, I asked him about it and he goes, yeah, that was the lead hen. That was her. And at one point I couldn't tell what was coming from her on the other side and him behind me. It was because he's good. He's, I mean, they sounded so much the same and it was something that I've never heard and can't do. So that was a, yeah. a great experience. And, uh, it's just, uh, the only way I can describe turkey hunting, which is what other people told me too, is it's the only thing that's close to elk hunting where you're so in tune with the animal. Um, and you have to be good at your role in order to create success, you know? Um, and God, just, there's not much else like it. Yeah. It, it, sometimes it's, it's kind of like elk hunting. Sometimes they can be at 30 minute hunt. Sometimes it can be multi-day and multi-hour and they can be, it seems like they can be a dumb as box of rocks and run right at you. Or sometimes you can't get within any kind of range of them. And I've had that, I've seen that once back in South Dakota. I had a, I set up in a really popular piece of public land and a little nervous because that's, there's a lot of turkey accidents that have happened when people are shooting at sounds or shooting at things. And I had a strut and Tom decoy. I put it out in this little field or little clearing amongst all these trees. And this hunter comes walking by and quickly wave at him. Don't shoot my decoy. Cause you're probably going to shoot me wave at him, wave at him. Okay. He keeps on going. And I sit back down and not five minutes later, these two Toms come walking the exact route that that old timer took. They were probably following him because he was probably calling and making all kinds of noise. So the Toms were following and checking things out. They walked right down to my decoys and got me a big old Tom with a paintbrush for a beard. So it was kind of cool. Um, Off of somebody else walking of, by. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't, I don't know if, that that one I'm not quite as proud of as uh, my archery turkey. I shot that one with a shotgun, but not five miles away from that spot. Another piece of public land, eastern South Dakota. And those are easterns, not Merriam's like we have here. I had uh, this piece of property that my buddy and I just were looking at. Didn't seem to be a whole lot of pressure there. Rolling hills, it's, uh, 30, 40, 50 yard wide, strip of trees running through it. Uh, the state had done a really good job putting some food plots in there. Just a perfect habitat for turkeys. Had some prairie. And we snuck in there middle of the day, poked over our heads over the hill and uh, found some turkeys and snuck up to them. And he shot a big old tom. I don't think anybody really hunted that that area and got a big tom. And so we kind of got the the itch and I had to go back. And I went went back by myself one time and brought my blind and had a couple of decoys set that up on an edge of a field and i heard the toms kind of in the trees uh never really saw them come come close and i kept moving my blind i think i moved it twice and then moved it to another edge of the field where i thought i had been hearing them getting trying to get a little closer and probably 10 o'clock in the morning so i'd just been sitting in a blind moving all morning long had and Colin had two big toms come running in and they were running, running pretty right at around the 
edge of the field and running right towards uh, my decoys and had my bull, my bow drew right and didn't even wait for him to stop, which is totally dumb. Uh, but at five, 10 yards, I was like, I, he's coming right at me and he ran, 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 drew shot, stuck him and he died right there. And spurs on him. I'm looking at him right now on my wall. Spurs are inch and five eighths and big old 10 inch beard. Just the most beautiful Turkey I ever seen. So topping that is probably not going to happen. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, ever since then, I've had a hard time getting back to the Turkey woods. Cause it's just that experience is not going to get topped. I know that for sure, but it was, it was a pretty, pretty sweet deal. Um, but, uh, Ivan, you got a project going. Tell me a little bit about this project. Well, I, um, I've been guiding for quite a number of years as I shared early, earlier. And, uh, I finally got tired of some of the complaints of my clients and myself. And I've designed a few things to fix that. The first one I finished is, uh, is a new boat oar. Um, I'm going to come out with a, oh, a number of sizes and two different styles. Um, and the manufacturer is uh, Larry McIntyre with so- Southern Wood Paddle Company. And um, he and I are working on this project together. He's already made me my first prototype. And um, I'm running it, adjusting sizes on it. And we're going to be ready to uh, go to market with these products. And and uh, then I'm going to start coming out with others as well that I'm working on here in the upcoming season. And uh, But the oars will be first. And uh, people can find them on smartflyfish.com, which is a website that I just started. And uh, we'll see how they roll. But for anything else, it's been fun working on the oar. And I know that it's a good one. It's uh, the only single piece of wood. It's made out of a piece of cypress that is 400 to 1,000 years old and was underwater for a number of years. So it's a reclaimed item, and it's uh, handcrafted, um, like with the knives and the hues and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's it's pretty cool. Sweet. I uh, wrote that link down, smartflyfish.com. Yep. Okay. We'll uh, add that to the show notes so people can click on that. But what's uh, any other products you're willing to... The next one I'm going to come out with is a boat plug that does not catch fly line. Oh. Yeah. The back client in my boat, the angler in the back of the boat, is casting and, and dropping fly line, which you do in fly fishing. You drop it on the ground. And it gets repeatedly tangled in the boat plug. So, yeah, I'm going to make one. I've already designed it. I'm just having it drawn now by the architect so that the uh, manufacturer can stamp a few out for me. That's awesome. And I think that's how outdoorsmen out and outdoor companies kind of get their start. Is they, they see a need for an area and create a product. I only wished that I had that kind of creativity or understanding of business to be able to do some of those things. Yeah. You, you've seen what works, but it doesn't work what people would like and you're in that industry. So 
good luck to you in, in that endeavor. And I hope you have some good success with that. But I think what we'll do is we'll uh, end it right here. Thanks so much, Ivan, for coming on. And All right. Well, um, I want you in my boat when the water comes down. That sounds good. I honestly, I haven't, I've never been in a boat on a river <laughs> fly fishing. I've never done it and I've always wanted to. All right. Well, let's do it. Right outside of this one church town, there's a gold dirt road to a whole lot of nothing. Got a deed to the land, but it ain't my ground. This is God's country.